Yo, Falsetto, what's your favorite line and scene from this slick flick pick? There's a scene in Paul Greengrass's Green Zone from 2010, and this is one of the greatest dialogues in the entire slick flick. So you have Miller, played by Matt Damon, and then you have a local named Freddy, who's trying to help Matt Damon and his squad. This dialogue starts with Miller. What happened to your leg? My leg is in Iran since 1987. Me too. I fight for my country. Freddie, listen. You give me your information. I'm going to get you a reward for what you did here today. Award? You think I do this for money? You think I don't care about my country? I see what's happening. You don't think I see what's happening? And all the people now, they have no water. They have no electricity. You think I do this for reward? You don't think I do this for me, for my country, for my future, for all these things? Whatever you want here, I want more than you want. I want to help my country. Man, that's some good shit. Then, once I was familiar with the backstory, this actually became equal to the dialogue I just recited. Matt Damon saying to one of his soldiers, put your fucking game face on. And I will get to the behind the footage later on why that's such an impactful comment. Some contender lines of dialogue. You have Miller talking to Poundstone, which I will call Poundstone, Clark Poundstone. I will call him Pound Cake throughout various parts of this slick flick pick review because he's kind of a pound cake. But Miller, when you peddle that shit in DC, did they know it was a lie or did they just never bother to ask? Poundstone. Okay, okay, come on. None of that matters anymore. WMD, this doesn't matter. And then he grabs Pound Cake angrily. What the fuck are you talking about? Of course it fucking matters. The reasons we go to war always matter. It's all that matters. It fucking matters. And then another dialogue between Miller and one of his soldiers. So Wilkins starts, Chief, our mission is here. You want to sit around, dig holes all day, or get something done? Well stated, Matt Damon. Now my favorite scene is what I call the Freddy Alleyway scene. It's after his sincere, heartbreaking, gut-wrenching motivation confessional to Roy Miller, played by Matt Damon and his men. And after he expounds upon why he's doing this and what his motivations are and all that he's been through, I say Miller did not have a leg to stand on, <laughs> which is funny. If you've seen Green Zone, you'll understand why. But it's excellent acting. It's well shot. It's kind of a quiet moment in the middle of all this chaos. And also, as I will learn later in the director's commentary with Paul Greengrass, the director, and Matt Damon, that scene is interesting because not only does Matt Damon stick around to hear what Freddie has to say, but so do Matt Damon's soldiers. So it's a really cool fucking moment. Now, action-wise, my favorite scene in this movie is when Miller is walking in dead of night to this bus station to meet up with Magellan. And he tells his men to stagger their teams and to follow 30 seconds behind. And just watching his crew do what they do best, silently shadowing him in the dark, brandishing night vision scopes. It was very intense. It was very technical. And I love the shit out of it. Greetings, 
cinematic fanatics, or as you will hear them say in this movie, and in several movies dealing with the Middle East, yalla yalla. Allow me the corrupting, consuming pleasure of ushering you to the sensually lit, cozy auditorium of Slick Flick Pick, an entertaining Slick Flick explaining series, a desirable diversion from the main vein of Chemohawk Sessions. You are my cinematic fanatic. I, your worthwhile fucking cinephile. For your tertiary episode, I offer an explosive political flick that financially failed, but critically sailed, efficiently stoking political vexation through tense, quasi-documentary narration, shining a bright tactical light on Miller, the once CIA-born spy-turned-soldier-killer, dropped in this sand-laden cinematic situation. Damon, born for this fucking thriller, while sporting urban fatigues and gripping the keys to our country's salvation. I offer you, regarding this politicized action-war thriller, AK shooting, feigned insights, gunfights, truth-diluting, shitty sandstorms, and sandy shitstorms, storming, torn war castles of the Emerald City, auricular presentation of one of my most sincere slick flick pleasures, regularly rewatched, acted with a cool, dry exterior by Matt Roy Miller Damon in a zone that is as hot as it is sweaty, bomb-demolished, yet reality-polished, mystery-solving, but guilt-not-absolving, provocatively persuasive film that asks fair questions by real war veterans, but offering unfair answers where the gunplay is as deadly as the wordplay, and frag explosions are as explosive as the underlying cultural smoldering. This is a tense, terse exercise and born-like style, where you feel the rubble from every building blast. An underappreciated, unambiguous, well-cast film. Green Zone, circa March 2010. Don't question Miller's objective, or he will remind you of your game face. With such steely, blue-eyed invective, you will see things from his goddamn perspective. In honor of the slick flick pick unveiling, I describe, through smooth detailing, this flick's slickness unfailing, its familiar yet fresh hero prevailing, and well-researched dialogue regaling. This is a slick, cinematic experience that touches a quartet of genres, thriller, action, mystery, and war. It transitions so seamlessly between genres and off simultaneously in such a way that you process it as a simple study in filmmaking sleekness. I have adored this film since my forgotten first viewing, but my repeated viewings of this film remain accruing. This flick remains a sand-smothered treat, Matt blending in with legit shit soldier, no easy feat. This flick commences during a firebombed night, and the tension remains through morning light. Miller is a killer who'd you'd not want to fight, but the more volatile question extant is, who here is in the right? Recline, cinematic fanatics, in your favorite well-worn, stale chair. Rustle up some popcorn, fresh as F-stars, the antithesis to that stale-ass chair I just mentioned. 
zoom in and zone out as I unwind the daily grind with a slick fucking flick pick. Green zone is the flick, so very slick, hence my F-star's pick. When slick flick pick is near, stick around, till falsetto prophet's voice you hear. Lights, camera, action, lens distraction, and with the right slick flick pick, grant satisfaction. I am your worthwhile cinephile. You're my cinematic fanatics. Together, we excitement unlock and run down the real world's unimaginative F-Star's clock while feasting our eyes on this slick flick pick prize. Enter with me, you cinematic fanatics, into the realm of film's fantasy as we unwind the grind of reality. I offer you pick 13, slick flick pick, unfriendly fire inside the wire, agents of mass corruption. See what I did there? Green Zone, 2010. Today we'll discuss the smooth transition from amnesic, taciturn, low-key Jason Bourne to opinionated, hot-topic, Oakley-adorned Roy Miller. A political polemic on duplicity endemic and corruption systemic. The viperous Jason Isaacs, his wicked handlebar mustache, a multi-man fire team with vast weapon cash, and Brendan Gleeson's bottomless bags of corruptive cash. Your worthwhile cinephile, falsetto prophet. Yalla is a common Arabic word meaning let's go or come on. It means you want something to happen. This will be spoken by Freddy at a pivotal scene in Green Zone. Now, I will give you a few updates. First of all, I have really been enjoying the shit out of these Slick Flick Pick reviews. I enjoy watching the flicks again. I enjoy collecting director's commentary when able. I enjoy putting together this material. And I sure as shit enjoy spreading this film's joy and knowledge to all of you, cinematic fanatics. You are able to hear Kimohawk Sessions on the following platforms. Audible, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and several others, such as Anchor, iHeartRadio, you name it. But I highly recommend listening on Apple Podcasts. I don't even have an iPhone. I have an Android. But what's good about Apple Podcasts is that you can leave reviews, comments, and you can rate me. And I would very much appreciate it if you took the time to do so, because I would love to get your feedback. I am happy to take any advice, any slick flick picks that you would really like to hear, and any complimentary words or phrases that you would like to share. I would very much appreciate that. Also, in addition to slick flick picks, there are several other books in the Kimohawk Sessions library you can enjoy. I now have 55 episodes plus 12 Kimohawk Sessions shorts, all about the white collar, how to survive it, how to not get pinned down, and how to not get demoralized in your white collar career. It also has a lot of anecdotes and a lot of personal nuggets that I share, a lot of funny shit going on. And I have interviewed over eight people in White Collar Black Belt, which is the first book in Kimohawk Sessions, which is how to survive the white collar. I also have nine episodes of Whiskey Wednesdays with Wham Bam Cam where it's just two guys sipping whiskey, trying to solve the world's woes, and it is unscripted and unadulterated. Also, I have four episodes of a horror short story that I have written that I read with Wham Bam Cam and sometimes an additional narrator called The Basement Party. 
I highly recommend you find The Basement Party, four episodes in, two episodes to go, if you think that you have what it takes to survive. But I can guarantee that you will need to invest in some Depends if you are going to get through The Basement Party. And of course, I have a full season released plus three episodes of the second season called Darker Mile Marker, where I and my co-host Red Devil provide an episodic review of Q-Code's Baraska podcast. I highly recommend you listen to Baraska, which is a fictional but terrifying original story that Q-Code picked up from C.K. Walker, and in it, they discuss some terrifying events unfolding in the town of Driskeen, Missouri. That is a very good show that we do to pay one tribute to our love of Baraska, but also we talk about what, it, what things were like when we were younger and how it harkens back to simpler, easier times in our youth. So please do check out Darker Mile Marker, starting with episode one, season one of Baraska. Now, what did you come here for today? The Green Zone is the most common name for the international zone of Baghdad. It was a 10 square kilometer or 3.9 square mile area in the Kart district of central Baghdad, Iraq. That was the governmental center of the Coalition Provisional Authority during the occupation of Iraq after the American-led 2003 invasion, and remains the center of the international presence in the city. Its official name began under the Iraqi interim government, was the international zone, although green zone remains the most commonly used term. Now, to me, green zone is a hell of a lot slicker than international zone. International zone sounds like a place that a virus commenced or the origin location of some pandemic, but green zone just sounds like a place that's friendly to environmentalists. Green zone was the administrative center for the Both Party. Now, I'm tempted to mispronounce it and call it bath as in bubble bath, but it's Both Party, or at least that's how I've heard it spoken most frequently. The area was taken by U.S. military forces in April 2003 in some of the heaviest fighting during the capture of Baghdad. So that just provides you a little bit of backstory on a real place that this movie will be touching on. The tagline for Green Zone is Chief Warrant Officer Roy Miller is done following orders. Okay, to me, that's derivative. I came up with one that I like better for my tagline of Green Zone. Freddy is missing one fucking leg. Baghdad, a complete lit powder goddamn cake. I know, my language is a little bit more harsh, but I think there's a little bit of a good rhyme to that scheme, and I think that it's more to the point. Green Zone is a 2010 action thriller film directed by Paul Greengrass. The storyline was conceived from a screenplay written by Brian Helgland, based on a 2006 nonfiction book, Imperial Life in the Emerald City, by journalist Rajiv Chandrasekharan. The book documented life within the Green Zone in Baghdad during this time. Now, I know I've told you there are some slick flick picks that I review that I will also read a book on, and I will do a compare, comparative contrasting analysis from the book to the film. I'm already working for you, Cinematic Fanatics. I'm working on The Ninth Gate. Remember Slick Flick pick number nine, my review of The Ninth Gate with Johnny Depp? Well, I'm actually reading the source material right now. I'm already on page 200, and it's called El Club Dumas, 
and I'm going to do a subsequent Slick Flick Pick episode, which will be a special episode where I talk about the book and how it relates to the flick. Now, I'm not going to do this, for example, for this movie. While I very much want to read Imperial Life in the Emerald City, I don't think that I'm going to get around to that for purposes of a comparison to this film, but I would like to read it for my own edification and to sate my own curiosity. Just to give you something to salivate on, I know that in the future, for example, I am going to do a book-slash-flick review of the film Heat, like Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus Heat, and I'm going to do a comparison analysis with the novel, which I purchased, and it is actually a prequel-slash-sequel about where the characters in Heat were before, and then the ones that are still alive, where they are after the movie Heat as we know it. So it was Michael Mann's version of a sequel, but in novel form. So I'm very much looking forward to going down the heat train, but that will be in the future. And there will be some other books that I will review just to keep myself honest and to offer you something new. So you will have some of those to look forward to. And I very much appreciate your patience. The key players in this film are General Muhammad al-Rawi, played by the great Yagal Nauer, who is hiding in Baghdad during the invasion of Iraq. And U.S. Army Chief Warrant Officer Roy Miller, played by Matt Damon, is part of a mobile exploitation team, or MET, MET, leader, who is searching for Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. And then there's a great supporting cast. You've got Greg Kinnear playing Clark Poundcake, I call him. He's like the slimy bureaucrat that's up to no good. And then you have the great Brendan Gleeson playing a CIA, like a grizzled CIA agent. You've got Amy Ryan playing a reporter. And then you've got the great Khalid Abdallah, who plays Freddy, and a very terrifying Jason fucking Isaacs with a handlebar mustache and a vast weapons cache. Now, some of the filming locations I thought looked great, considering that it's supposed to be in Iraq, but it was actually filmed in Spain, Morocco, and the United Kingdom. And it was definitely a financial flop because you have to keep in mind that whatever the listed budget was, you can add anywhere from 25 to 100 million in addition for marketing and advertising. And when you factor in how much went into advertising, roughly $40 million in marketing for this film, it lost money. There's no equivocation about that. Now, Paul Greengrass, you will recognize him as a director because he has directed three Bourne movies. He directed Bourne Supremacy, Bourne Ultimatum, and Jason Bourne, which came out in 2016. So it's obvious a couple things. One, he loves working with Matt Damon, and it's not necessarily fully ascribed to him, but one of his si signature moves is to use what they call the queasy cam, where you've got this fast cut, frenetic pace action sequences, where much like the people that are involved, you can see parts and you can see what's happening from different angles and perspectives, but it is not the way it is in John Wick, where with John Wick, the camera backs up and you can see the fluidity of all the strikes and the body movements and the shooting and the action sequences. John Wick is almost like one long panning shot, but with the Paul Greengrass approach, as is shown in Green Zone, it's very quick, it's very rapidly cut, and it's almost chaotic at times. And much like Catherine Bigelow's The Hurt Locker, I feel like it was done intentionally specifically for this film. So that you can feel a sense of pandemonium and feeling disoriented as you're watching these characters. It is about a two hour long movie, and I feel like it moves at a breathtaking pace. 
I could have enjoyed it being two and a half hours long, but it is what it is. And I found it to be one of my most favorite films because it's weird. It's like, it definitely has war film attributes, but it's not your traditional war film. If anything, the war aspect is trumped by politics and this investigative conspiracy type story. It's a very straightforward action film, but it's just a great movie. And for any of you who love Jason Bourne, who I know there is no shortage, there's actually a surplus of Bourne lovers out there. It's like watching Jason Bourne before he developed amnesia going to Iraq. And what's cool is the stakes are even higher. I mean, Jason Bourne, you're really only concerned about him, the man, and maybe some the family members of some people that he's been asked to assassinate. But for this, there's so much more at stake, not just one country, but several countries on the world stage. My best advice for enjoying Green Zone is to not go into this thinking about, oh, Iraq, the attack on Iraq, the false circumstances, we were duped, it was a a byproduct of being misled. Try not to think about all the politics of it. Just look at it as a straightforward action thriller where you've got the great American face of Matt Damon, you've got a sense of duty. You've got a sense of accomplishment, and you've got this proficient group of guys trying to ascertain the truth. If you think about it in terms of a straightforward, no-fluff action film, I guarantee you will enjoy it much more than some poor souls who went into this for more of the political statement they thought it was trying to make, and as a result, their level of joy was undercut. I definitely recommend going into this just to be entertained and to see it for much like a Jason Bourne movie just straightforward action. Now, Matt Damon's character, Roy Miller, is based on a real-life Army Chief Warrant Officer named Richard Monte Gonzalez. He served as a technical advisor on the film for purposes of how the soldiers were supposed to act and how they were supposed to maneuver on camera. But one of the coolest things I learned from the commentary was that they had about 30 technical advisors on this film because there were a shit ton of the soldiers that you see that Matt Damon's squad is made up of They're actual fucking U.S. soldiers, and several of them saw at least one tour in Iraq. They know their shit, and they were serving as technical advisors by way of their authentic movements and their authentic advice that they relayed to the film crew and to the director. Amy Ryan, you know her as Holly from The Office, but she plays Lori Dane, a foreign correspondent for The Wall Street Journal, who is investigating all of this. And then Brendan Gleeson. Now, Brendan Gleeson is a great actor. He has been in so many movies and he's always tip top. He was in fucking Braveheart. 28 Days Later, he was in another conspiracy CIA type movie called Safe House, where he plays another CIA guy. And he was in Dark Blue. So I love Brendan Gleeson. We already talked about Greg Kinnear. And then, of course, Yagal Nauer, this guy who plays Al Rawi. He's such a presence. He's such a presence in this film. His character is loosely based on the real-life informant Rafid Ahmed Alwan, a.k.a. Curveball. They sometimes refer to him as the Jack of Clubs. This was actually mentioned also in The Hurt Locker, when you had Rafe Fiennes' character, and they were collecting high-value targets, and they had that deck of cards, and they were talking about the different people that they were either pursuing or that they'd already collected. He is used in a lot of films. It's always the Jack of Clubs, the Jack of Clubs. Jason Isaacs plays Major Briggs, a special operations commander on the hunt for high-value targets. Now, Jason Isaacs is also already familiar 
with this type of militaristic role because he had a great small role in the film Black Hawk Fucking Down, and he was great in that. Now, a little history on this filming that came together. In January 2007, after completing The Bourne Ultimatum, which you will recall is the third movie in that initial trilogy of Bourne films, but the director, Paul Greengrass, announced his intent to adapt a film of the 2006 nonfiction book, Imperial Life in the Emerald City, which I mentioned, that was put together by a journalist for the Washington Post. He wrote a script based on the book, and he was wanting to do something kind of in the vein of United 93, which was a film that he was very impressed by. And to tie it all together, it was the actor, Khalid Abdallah, who plays Freddy, who I think does the greatest job of acting in this film. But Greengrass was so impressed with his performance in the film United 93 that he actually picked him to play this role. But of course, Greengrass expressed interest in casting Matt Damon as the lead. He'd already worked with him on two Bourne films up to that point. And of course, Matt Damon agreed. And then it was just a matter of getting the remaining actors, which some of them were huge names. They were huge grabs, in my opinion. Amy Ryan, she had gotten an Academy Award nomination for Best Actress in Gone Baby Gone, which is interesting because Gone Baby Gone was directed by Ben Affleck, and Ben Affleck is like the home slice of Matt Damon. They go way back. When they got an Academy Award nomination for Best Screenplay for a movie that they were in together called Goodwill Hunting. Fact check, fact check, cinematic fanatics. Best writing, screenplay, written directly for the screen goes to Matt Damon and Ben Affleck for Goodwill Hunting, and that's the Academy Awards. So great job on that. And Amy Ryan was nominated for a Oscar for Best Actress in a Supporting Role at the 80th Academy Awards for Gone Baby Gone. I appreciate your patience. Now it is time for TT or Trivialized Trivia. Many of the soldiers in Matt Damon's WMD unit were actual Iraq War and Afghanistan War veterans, not actors. Damon said, and he said this repeatedly in interviews and in the commentary, his biggest challenge was knowing he was an actor who was giving orders to actual soldiers. Roy Miller is based on U.S. Army Chief Warrant Officer Monty Gonzalez, who had the real-life job of hunting for weapons of mass destruction after the fall of Baghdad. Eagle Nauer, the actor playing General Al-Rawi, he portrayed Saddam Hussein two years earlier in the TV series House of Saddam. He also has a role in a Homeland episode where he represents like a figurehead or the head of military or state, and his plane gets blown up. So there's something about this guy who likes to be in films or shows where he's around explosions and or fire. I don't know if that's a quinky dink or not. And of course, this is the first film Brendan Gleeson, who plays the CIA operative Martin Brown, takes on the role of a CIA agent. The second would be in the Denzel Washington, Ryan Reynolds action thriller film Safe House, which came out two years later in 2012, where he plays a CIA senior agent. I also really enjoyed Safe House. No fucking lie. Hey, who knows? Maybe I'll even do a slick flick pick on Safe House. Maybe I will, maybe I won't, you know? And despite what is shown, General Al-Rawi, the Jack of Clubs, is the most wanted deck of playing cards. And as of 2020, he is still at large and alive somewhere in the world. I did talk about that briefly on the slick flick pick review of The Hurt Locker. And watching this film with the director's commentary, I learned the following. 
So Damon was very stoked to be working with actual vets. And I thought that that was awesome, how they were able to incorporate bona fide soldiers with legit shit actors. And he said, Damon said that if if they don't buy it, if the soldiers don't believe him as their commander, we as the audience will not either. So he said if they're shown rolling their eyes at any point during filming, the scene's over. But they never did. And after a couple of weeks of Matt Damon being with them, he earned their respect and they had a great camaraderie that was shown both off and on screen. Shooting locations, you have Rabat, Sale, Kenitra, Morocco, Surrey, England, Greater London, England, and Murcia, Spain. Beautiful, beautiful places. Lloyd Levin, the producer, he made an insightful comment. He said that the actor makes the soldier feel more comfortable acting, and the soldier makes the actor feel more authentic. I thought that that was very eloquently stated. Matt Damon would say that the real-life person that he is portraying, Monty, he said that he knew something was not right the first area that they went to trying to find WMD, and when they came up short, he knew from that moment on that something was not right. Greengrass wanted to state very specifically that this is not a straight book adaptation. It is loosely based on material from the book. Morocco is the shooting location for where they have the Baghdad airport in the film. I thought that was crazy. They also talk about how big the movie feels, like it feels like a big production. For example, everywhere you look, there are choppers. They're in the background. They're in the foreground. It just feels like a big film. And I agree. Greengrass's goal was for the film to be powerly performed and feel utterly real. And I think that he achieved that end. And it's funny because you really have at the head of this film, the Department of Defense versus the CIA. So in a way, it's kind of like that old mad comic where you have spy versus spy. I think that from the moment that they encounter Freddy, based on what they were saying in this commentary, he drives the rest of the plot of the film. And I think that's true. Without Freddy, the movie does not feel as cohesive. But once Freddy enters the scene, it's basically his movie for the rest of the film, as far as the behaviors and reactions of the people around him. And then, of course, the get your fucking game face on. Why I listed that is such a great line of dialogue is because Matt Damon was saying that in this scene, the soldiers are questioning him. Like, are you sure we want to do this? Or where's the intel coming from? And Matt Damon said that another one of the soldiers, I think it was Potts, pulled him aside and said, listen, outside of this mode of battle, if soldiers question you, fine. But in this moment, when we're like battle ready, that would be completely unacceptable. So that's where you would remind them to put their fucking game face on, which is exactly what Matt Damon does, and the soldier falls in line. So it was a really cool scene to see on film because that was a legit shit human reaction upon Matt Damon saying what he said. I believe it was almost ad-libbed, if not completely ad-libbed. And Paul Greengrass is talking about how you want to be steadily turning the screw of suspense. So like when they go and they raid the safe house, where all of the generals are congregated, that's where they, they didn't want to just rush it. They wanted to take their time and they wanted you to feel the suspense in real time. And I love how Paul Greengrass describes the situation. Miller is in charge, but he's way out of his depth. And I love how everyone, as Matt Damon talks about this, stopped and listened to Freddy in the alleyway when he was laying out all of the reasoning to why he's there, how he lost his leg, how important this whole fiasco is to him and his, and his involvement in his own country and his sense of patriotism. 
Not only does Matt Damon stick around, but all of the soldiers stop and they hear what Freddy has to say. In my opinion, he lost the leg. You motherfuckers can lend an ear. That's what I was thinking as I heard this. The director, Paul Greengrass, says that the actor can solve so many problems instantly in a film. Whether the lighting's not right or the camera angle, or you're trying to sell a scene that's really taxing and difficult, he said that the actor, by simply moving to be closer to the camera or stepping in a different direction, or just based on the gravitas of how solid they are with their acting, that can solve so many problems behind the lens instantly. I think that Matt Damon is the right character for the American everyman. He was in The Rainmaker. Of course, he's in several Bourne movies. I think he has a good face for an American, kind of like Clark Kent. He's attractive, but he's not a supermodel. He's got very expressive eyes. He has a square jaw. He's just a very reliable face, and I think he looks great on camera. So if I'm going to think of a soldier that I can relate to who has taken on the mantle of me walking in his shoes by way of enjoying this cinematic adventure, Matt Damon's a great face for America. I can just picture like the American flag flapping in a zephyr. You have a fucking bald eagle swooping down and grabbing by its talons a rainbow trout fish out of an Oregon stream. And then you just have Matt Damon's face with that scarf around his neck and in military garb. And I think it just works. Also, they talk about how Miller's reasoning could not be coming from a personal angle. This film was always bigger than just one man or one soldier. So I thought that was very expert that they identified that at no point could this be like a personal vendetta for him. It was always a bigger story. And Brendan Gleeson is such a good listener in this film. He does two things really well, listening and thinking. I think that he would make a great psychotherapist because he is just so good at listening. And when Matt Damon is talking to him, he is giving him fucking audience. As far as props go, this diary or this journal or whatever the fuck that they were able to get a hold of and then Jason Isaacs tried to take from Matt Damon, but Matt Damon had already given it to Freddy. It is kind of a plot device. I mean, it is a literal prop, but I think that it's very important because that becomes the focal point for the rest of the film. Everybody trying to get their hands on it, using the information inside of it. I thought it was effective. And Matt Damon said, it is fun to watch smart people thinking. And that's what you get out of Brendan Gleeson in this film, is he's a smart guy and you get to see him think. And I agree with him. Some of the most riveting flicks that I've ever seen do not even involve a gun, like watching The Insider or All the President's Men. Those are not action movies. They are dramas and they are intelligent dramas. And that does not make them any less enthralling or exciting. So I totally agree with that comment. The musical pace, as Paul Greengrass explains, it must be accurate and have a clarity for the piece. And it's very challenging to do because you think about the score of a film from the very beginning to the very end, that score is with you all along the ride. And if that score, if it picks up too fast, too soon, or it drops off prematurely, you have just thrown a fucking frag grenade at the believability of the film. Jason Isaacs is convincing as fuck as a special force operative. Also, apparently he's so great masking his own accent because he's an Englishman that Damon could not hear the English in him. So well done, Jason. And then you get to the end. Al-Rawi asks a question to Matt Damon that cannot be answered. He dies before you're going to get an answer because there is no good answer for what he poses to Matt Damon. But then Freddie gives his final reasoning on why he just shot Al-Rawi to death. And now Matt knows the full story. So the way that they describe it, Miller fails to get the man, but he does get the truth. 
So in that sense, it's kind of a half C victory. Also, it's interesting to note that Briggs, played by the great Jason Isaacs, cannot kill Miller, which leads to his own death, because in that moment of hesitation, he takes his eye off the fucking prize. Also, I think it's interesting. Okay, so this movie is about America, right? It's about the American invasion of Iraq. Well, you've got a shit ton of red, because there's blood everywhere. There's blood in the streets. There's a lot of awesome shootouts and explosions. There's even a chopper that goes down, Black Hawk Down style. But then you've got these five key actors, and they're all white, and they all have blue fucking eyes. It's ridiculous. Matt Damon and Jason Isaacs, Amy Ryan, Greg Kinnear, and Brendan Gleeson. They've all got either extremely penetrating Ed Harris blue eyes, or they've got eyes that change between blue and green. But that's the largest compilation of green fucking eyes I've ever seen in an action war thriller film, and it's awesome. So I guess it's kind of like red, white, and blue or something. Maybe it's a subtle connection or some form of artistry. Now, cinematic fanatics, grab the oh shit bar in your rolling hummer. Here we go. Yalla, yalla. We are good to go, and we are beginning with the actual film now, Green Zone 2010. It's Universal, also one of the company's working title. It starts off, we are in Tikrit, and we have Saddam's palace. This is March 19th, 2003, and we're showing Baghdad, Iraq. We have an Al-Rawi safe house. There's bombings. General Al-Rawi, we must go. The way that they show the nocturnal fire and the explosions is fucking awesome. This, first and foremost, is an action thriller. And for that, you've got to have believable, stupendous, splendiferous fucking special effects. And it does. It delivers in fine fashion. The explosions look great. Now, fast forward four weeks later, we are at Diwania, which is a chemical weapons facility verified on the WMD site in Matt Damon's commander's brief. There's mention of there being nerve agents there, so they've got to shut this shit down, right? I like how it shows the convoy and they're tossing bottles of water off to the side to the local denizens, the hoi polloi. I like how it shows that while the soldiers are there on a mission, I believe confidently that they also try to help people where they could. Even if it was a modest help or a modicum of help, I believe that they tried to help out along the way. I truly believe that. Now, this chaos that you see in the streets, it reminds me of what I've been told about Jakarta, Indonesia. I was told that there you are smack in the middle of Jakarta and say some idiot causes a traffic fracas of sorts. Because of their dumbass, they cause an accident on the road. I have been told that they can be killed by the mobs that form, like rocks can be thrown at them or they can be beaten to death in the streets. And I thought that was absolutely fucking insane. Now, they're dealing with a sniper in one of the buildings, and Matt Damon asked for several things, but he asked for a butter bar. I didn't know what the fuck a butter bar was. Maybe I thought it was like a sword that you had that you put butter on so that it would be more maneuverable or more aerodynamic. No. In the army, a butter bar is a slang term used for second lieutenant. This refers to the insignia of a gold bar shaped like a stick of butter. The term generally is used in a condescending or patronizing manner towards a boot lieutenant that thinks he knows everything. Now, CBIST, okay, so this is EOD. CBIST stands for Chemical and Biological Intelligence Support Team. So there's another acronym. EOD, of course, is Explosive Ordnance Disposal. That EOD was precisely what they were doing in The Hurt Locker, which was a previous slick flick pick. Now, I love how Matt Damon issues orders. It's just like Tommy Lee Jones in The Fugitive, which actually won him a Best Supporting Actor Academy Award for his performance. I remember whenever I'd watch these movies with my mom, she always loved leaders that would spout out a million orders for people to immediately do. 
think of your ER doctor that's like, rip spreader, stat. My mom loves shit like that, and I love it too. Now you see all these looters and you see panic. I thought that was captured very realistically. And then we have some great gunplay. Now this film is not riddled with gunplay like you would expect in a traditional war film. But when they do have gunplay or an exchange of gunfire, I think it looks awesome. Now Miller is kind of like Jack Ryan here. He's like half investigation, half paperwork, but then also the other half, half soldier killer. So he's really carrying a lot of vests, as it were, for purposes of what this movie is asking of him. Then they put on gas masks and they find pigeon shit. This pigeon shit is so thick, it makes me think of whenever I would pass along a document at my former white-collar company to my manager to take under advisement, I feel like she would stick that document under her canary cage to be shit on (laughs) by a bunch of canaries, much like this derelict building that we see, with, by the way, no weapons of mass destruction. This is the third straight bust, no weapons caches. This film moves, and I appreciate that. There's no bullshit. We just start right into it. We are in the Humvee with dust on the windshield with Matt Damon. It's two hours long, and it moves like crazy, and I love it. Now, it's Saddam's International Airport. This is where we see Amy Ryan. She was nominated for Academy Award for Gone Baby Gone, which was, of course, directed by Ben Affleck, who is Matt's real-life main man. I think that Greg Kinnear is appropriately slimy in this role. Now, Magellan, who you will hear throughout this film, is similar to, like, Deep Throat. It's like Deep Throat from All the President's Men film. That's kind of the connection that I made. Now, I remind you, if you truly want to enjoy this slick flick pick, try not to think of it as a political film or anything that touches too close to home. One, that will date the film, because we all know that this occurred over 20 years ago, where you had a 2003 invasion. So try not to think about it too much in terms of, well, were the American people misled, or what were we doing there? Think of it instead of, okay, this is just an adrenaline thrill ride. And if you think about it in terms of like pure fiction, like a Jason Bourne film, it will be well-executed escapism. And that is what we're going for sometimes. I like that it shows wreckage on the side of the road near the command center. I appreciate the minute details. And then this guy Bethel that's talking with Matt Damon, I know him. That's Michael O'Neill. He usually plays senior law enforcement or military officers. He was in the Jack Ryan show, he was in the show Shooter, and he was in Sons of Anarchy. And I think he might have been in, a, in an episode of Jericho as well. But he's a very familiar face. And I like how they talk about how there's shitstorms around there. To me, they have both shitstorms of sand and sandy storms of shit. They have both. Now we see this guy, Hayes. He's the guy that basically tells Matt Damon to shut the fuck up after he lets him speak his piece. He's in a lot of stuff. That's Patrick Saint, a spirit. He was in The Shield. He was in Sons of Anarchy and Homeland. He's been in a lot of stuff as well, particularly on TV. I like how they show Brendan Gleeson kind of standing off to the side. He's watching everything. He's being vigilant. Now he's CIA. Now Matt Damon says, Every time we've come up to one of these weapon sites, we've rolled a donut. I searched everywhere to try to figure out what rolling a donut means, and the only thing I could find was, rolling a donut means a promiscuous woman. But I don't think that has shit to do with what Matt Damon's talking about, so I assume that that's just a fancy military way of saying, we found zero, like a big fat zero. Now when Matt Damon is told by one of the superiors, let's talk offline, that sounds like a white collar buzzsaw term to me. And so I remember hearing that kind of shit at work myself when I would try to stick up for myself. But I think it's interesting that they ultimately uncovered a toilet factory, which is appropriate because they're on crap duty and they're coming up with shit. And then I love the way Matt Damon delivers this line. I'm saying there's a disconnect 
between what's in these packets and what we're seeing on the ground. Totally believable. Matt Damon is a soldier. In case you forgot, he was great and born and he's great here too. We have another traffic jam, just like Jakarta. And I remember that they said in the behind the scenes that originally it was supposed to be gasoline that people were riding over in the streets. But for here, it's water. And I like that because I think water is even more vital than fuel. Because if you can't put water into your body, you die. And then there's nobody to pump oil. Now we have this white-collar argument between the DOD and the CIA. So Greg versus Brendan. I like that they both have arguments, they both have solid arguments, and they both have a lot of conviction. So DOD, Greg over here is saying, we were fucked over by these people, you know, Saddam is evil, and all these people sided with Saddam. We don't care, we don't want their help, we're just going to occupy this territory, and the American military is going to solve this problem. He's coming from an extremely idealistic situation where he's thinking mindset-wise that everyone will love democracy, and democracy will spread like wildfire. Mr. Gleason over here, who's been doing this a while, as he's a Middle East expert, he says, no, we need to use the Iraqi army to help us. That's where they kind of reach an impasse. But we're reminded that democracy is in fact messy, and then I love how it shows these guys in the streets wearing suits and they have AK-47s, because we have a pivotal meeting right now. We have a meeting between these top generals, and it's awesome. Hello, Freddy! We are introduced to Freddy now, and Freddy will be an integral part of the remainder of this film. And I love how they're digging holes, trying to find weapons. It reminds me of a scene in Casino, where Robert De Niro is standing out in the middle of the Nevada desert, and he says, there's a lot of holes buried in this desert, and a lot of problems buried in those holes. Now remember that Saddam's men are Baathist people, not Baathist. And I love how Freddy says to Miller, it's not logical. I'm here to help you, okay, Miller? I think the reason that Miller believes him is because he maintains such strict eye contact. Freddy looks Miller in the eyes. I believed him, so I understand why Miller would believe him. It fits. And then he just says, come with me, Freddy. Now there's a term that you will hear that the soldiers will say to each other from time to time, and it is hua. Hua. A battle cry used by members of the United States Army and Air Force, originally spelled who. The battle cry was first used by members of the 2nd Cavalry Regiment during the Second Seminole War in 1841. It then changed since World War II, has been a widely used throughout the U.S. Army, and gained a more general meaning of anything and everything except no. It is comparable to URA, which the United States Marine Corps uses, and the Navy. So you've got HUA, which is an Army thing, and you've got URA or UA, which is the Marine Corps, and Navy. Now you've got this guy, okay, Al-Rawi. All he does is clear his throat and everyone else shuts the fuck up. That is power. This is a great scene at the safe house. There's action, there's suspense, and there's pandemonium, as you've got kids and families inside the house as well. We hear about the Jack of Clubs. This, of course, was mentioned in the Hurt Locker. And now we enter Jason Isaac's IE handlebar mustache. He is abducting the prisoners that they abducted, then he calls Matt Damon, kind of casually, white bread. Well, white bread, it means blandly conventional in a way that is regarded as characteristic of the white middle class. So I think what he's trying to say is, I'm a badass, I've been doing this for a while, and you have no place here. You're weak, you're suburbanite, whatever. That's the best I was able to draw, as it was said so quickly, and they moved right along. But I love how he nonchalantly says, have a nice war. Now, I say be nice to Freddy, you assholes. He is helping you and risking his life. He's got one leg and he's doing it for free, I might add. 
And then, of course, Pound Cake says, I give you Magellan, you give me anonymity. That is the back alley deal that Grey Kinnear has worked out. Now we are shown a very nice pool with pool-dipped dames, sun-kissed toes, and Domino's pizza. And then you hear for the first time in the film, Matt Damon say, outstanding, which I know makes my man Wham Bam Cam happy. Outstanding. The diary will be critical from this moment forward. You know, kind of like a disc or a key or a hard drive or some witness prop in just about any thriller. Oh, shit. After he meets her, Miller Google stalks the reporter, Amy Ryan. Creep. And again, I call him Pound Cake instead of Poundstone because he just kind of resembles a pound cake. He's slimy and, he, and you just want to squash him. Now we have Jason the Torturer. He is a merc of all trades. He will do what is asked of him and he will take no prisoners. Well, except for the prisoners that he abducted. But hey, the book. Again with the book, he says. Now we have this mobile exploitation team again. This is who we're primarily focusing on when we're focusing on Matt Damon and his crew. Now we get some plot here. Brendan never met Magellan. Uh-oh. I sense conspiracy. Conspiracy in the Emerald City. That is what the source material book should have been called. What do you think you're doing here, Miller? Asked by the CIA guy, Brendan. That's a fair question. And then he hands them, casually, a bag filled with a million dollars. And then he says, don't be naive. Well, this will come full circle and be used back at him. A million dollars in this bag. I remember that's been the plot of so many movies and TV shows. It was in Jericho. It was in Prison Break. It was C-Notes Backstory. There's just a lot of depictions of all this money that was just floating loosely around in the Middle East during our occupations. And my understanding is that they needed to have a lot of cash on hand to pay off some of the tribe leaders when they were trying to work out negotiations for purposes of political space and the actual geography that they were occupying. So there was just a shit ton of cash floating around Iraq, Afghanistan, and a bunch of other places. So I think that's interesting that money is shown so flippantly here when he just throws Matt Damon this bag of cash. But when he says, don't be naive, and it will come back full circle, it reminds me of Bruce Willis in Die Hard when he tells Hans Gruber, Alan Rickman, he tells him not to fire on this police vehicle that's trying to get into the building. And he says, thank you, cowboy. I'll take that under advisement. He orders them to shoot another rocket at it. Well, then later, Bruce Willis pays him back and says under his breath, Take this under advisement, jerkweed. <laughs> he throws a bomb down the elevator shaft and blows out the first couple of floors of the building. So that's what it made me think of. Uh-oh. The Pentagon revoked Matt Damon's transfer and Langley confirms. So both Brendan and Matt Damon are in trouble now, thanks to Pound Cake. Mr. Mustache Handlebar Man is, is told to use local assets as its high priority. First of all, I think they should just say high pry, as it clearly means priority, and you get a little bit of a rhyme. But I like that they do use local assets. I like this touch because when they start raiding these Al-Rawi safe houses, it is locals that are doing the dirty work of these Delta Force guys. We see a lot on this journey throughout this film, and so does Freddy. Freddy kind of serves as the moral center, and I like that we're seeing things through his eyes, and he's looking at all the costs of this occupation. It will ultimately pay dividends on why he makes the final decision that he makes towards the end of the movie. Now we have some very convincing Matt as at the OGA or other government agency prison base where they have all these high value targets held. I haven't seen Matt Damon that convincing since he was in the talented Mr. Fucking Ripley. So good job, Matt. Also, I like that the CIA is portrayed heroically here. They clearly are just trying to get to the truth and they're not serving some 
obscene, or some nefarious motivation. So this is a rare instance where the CIA is actually shown to be pretty good guys. Uh-oh, that meeting that took place before was in Jordan. Dun-dun-dun. That is where this movie has its conspiracy elements to it. Now we see some dark alleys and stray dogs. This reminds me of The Hurt Locker, when Jeremy Renner and Anthony Mackie go to rescue their friends. Man, we see everything in this movie. We see breach bombs, we see grenades, we see helicopter machine gunning, we see RPG. All we needed was to see some green smoke for a fucking exfiltration, and that would have completed it. Where is Al-Rawi? Boom, execution to his head in the safe house. Damn. Miller to Amy Ryan. Did you ever meet Magellan? No. Wow. Well, she claims it was a reliable intermediary. Well, I say like Celine said in the movie Underworld, lies. It was raw intel that this reporter was getting from a senior official. Hmm, I wonder what senior official that might be. Pound cake. Now, Jordan was the meeting location, which is oh shit squared, because now this conspiracy is starting to unravel. And then Matt Damon gives the money back to Mr. Gleason. You can keep your million dollars. Okay, we never see this in movies. So often in films, that money would have taken on a plot of its own. And here they don't. The cycle is completed. He returns the money. He did not need the money anymore as he's going in a different direction. What if Magellan told Poundcake something he didn't want to hear? Ah, that is an interesting complexion on this conspiracy matter. Al-Rawi's safe houses are being hunted. Okay, this is just fucking insane. First of all, you've got these loyal-ass bodyguards, these Al-Rawi's men. These guys are willing to die before they give up any information on this man. So that's pretty cool. And then, of course, Matt Damon and his crew, they have no support. So it's 100% weapons and comm checks before they go into battle. The city looks awesome sauce at night. This is a hell of a way to get us to the climax. It is a dark city, but there's enough lighting and there's enough fires in the background that you can still see what's happening. Now, Jason Isaacs clearly knows his shit. He just starts screaming shit off like Blue Force Tracker, Met Delta. They are very, very dedicated to tracking down these guys. Miller has gone off the reservation. Well, this same term was used or was mentioned in Spy Game with Robert Redford and Brad Pitt. That's another good movie, Spy Game. But whenever you go off the reservation, that's when you basically, like if you had diplomatic immunity or something, or if you were acting in an official capacity, now you're getting to that point where they will disavow all knowledge and you're on your fucking own. But Miller goes to this bus stop and he tells his teams to stagger and follow behind in 30 seconds. Looks awesome. Very suspenseful. We see more dogs. And then we see that the Both party is starting to dissolve. You know, like Both salts. <laughs> Get it? Bath, Both. I thought that was funny. But we have some bad timing, Poundcake. He releases a message to the press that basically says all these Iraqis and, their, and these insurgents and everybody are just on their own. Well, this is not good. Because now, what Matt Damon originally wanted to do, which was work out a deal with Al-Rawi, that is in the shitter. You know, like the same toilet factory where we were at the beginning of the movie, where we were looking for WMD. Oh, and then you get to see some shit through a night vision scope, which looks awesome. Very well handled, meticulously so, by Paul Greengrass and these real soldiers that are doing real soldier shit. It's awesome. Now, the alleyway chasing is very reminiscent of The Hurt Locker, which was a former slick flick pick. And here comes BB, or what I call backstabbing backup. You have got Jason Isaacs and the chopper pretending like he's there to help them, but all he's trying to do is track down these high-value targets so he can kill them. And then we learn through Al-Rawi that after 1991, they dismantled all of their weapons program. There is no WMD. And then you get two of the best lines in the movie delivered with precision and poised 
locution by Al Rawi. Your government wanted to believe the lie, Mr. Miller. Where is my place, Mr. Miller, in the new Iraq? On a deck of cards? Chilling. Chilling shit. Thank you, helicopter, as you seamlessly, subtly help show us, the audience, where we are and where the protagonist and the antagonist are. It's actually very clever, because with all this chaos, you could just leave the theater and you're no longer interested in what happens, like you give up. But because of this helicopter, it gives you an organic way. That helicopter is obviously there for a reason. But that helicopter tracking these different targets allows us to see just what the fuck is happening. And this is where the shit's just flying off the rails. You have got a quartet of hunts going on. Miller is hunting Al-Rawi. Freddy is hunting Al-Rawi. The Chopper is hunting fucking everybody. And Briggs is hunting Al-Rawi and Miller. It is awesome. This is where you get like Jason Bourne trying to get out of a safe house where he's being pursued by the local police and an assassin and the dark CIA. It's pandemonium at its finest but it's shown with precision craft, and I love it. Hello, Bourne! Where the fuck have you been hiding this movie? You're now doing what you do best. Running, staring, and fucking shooting. I love it. We get Bourne coming out. I think he's starting to have amnesia again, and he's forgetting that he's not Bourne anymore, but that he's Roy Miller, and they're different people. And then one of the best lines of the film is delivered by Freddy. It's the last line that he delivers. It is not for you to decide what happens here. I love it. And Paul Greengrass talks about this. The film ends on somewhat of an upbeat note, and Greengrass says there's no reason to end a film on a shitty note. You want to have some positivity if you can. I think that this ending is very similar to the ending of Safe House, where Ryan Reynolds, much like Roy Miller in this movie, is told to stand down. Ryan Reynolds in Safe House and Matt Damon in this movie, they both have evidence that is very critical. And in both films, they release the evidence. In this case, Matt Damon releases it to about 25 different news groups. And obviously that information is going to get out, so the real story will be told. So in that sense, it's kind of upbeat. Now, Ebert. I always drop an Ebert review if I can find one, because Ebert is one of the few movie reviewers that goes into excruciating detail about the flick. He gave this four out of four stars. That's a perfect score. That's awesome. He goes on to say, Green Zone looks at an American war in a way almost no Hollywood movie ever has. We're not the heroes, but the dupes. Its message is that Iraq's fabled weapons of mass destruction did not exist, and that neocons within the administration fabricated them, lied about them, and were ready to kill to cover up their deception. Okay, what is a neocon? A neocon, this is separate research, someone who agrees politically with conservative ideas including free market capitalism. Moderate conservatives tend to clash with neocons on issues of foreign policy. There you go. He goes on to say, is this true? I'm not here to say. It's certainly one more element in the new narrative that has gradually emerged about Iraq. The dawning realization that we went to war under false pretenses. But this film makes no claim to be based on fact, but provides characters and situations that have uncanny real-life parallels. I think that this was done so that you could take my advice and you could immerse yourselves in this film where it's just fun and it's action, and it's thrilling, but you don't have to get bogged down in the fucking politics. Have I made the plot sound complex? Greengrass works with his screenwriter to tell this story with considerable clarity. I totally agree. By limiting the characters and using typecasting, he makes a web of deceit easy to understand. Also a great help to Miller is a local named Freddy, who risks his life to help him, acts as a translator, 
and is given the film's key line of dialogue. And this is very important. He says the action in Green Zone is followed in what he calls the queasy cam style that he has found distracting in the past, where you have a lot of quick cuts between handheld shots. But he said it did not bother Ebert here. It may be because he was so involved in the story. Perhaps also because unlike the Bourne films, this one contains no action sequences that are logically impossible. When we see a car chase that couldn't take place in the real world, we naturally think about the visual effects. When they could take place and it's a good movie, we're thinking about the story. Green Zone will no doubt be under fire from those who are still defending the fabricated intelligence we used as an excuse to invade Iraq. Yes, the film is fiction, employs far-fetched coincidences, and improbably places one man at the center of the action. But the bottom line is, this is one hell of a thriller. I agree, Ebert. I think that part of the movie's glamour is how it is sold or how it is advertised. So if you want to enjoy Green Zone, just think of it as Jason Bourne goes to Iraq, and I guarantee you will have a fun fucking time. I appreciate you bearing with me, you cinematic fanatics. My throat has been fucked 20,000 ways from the sea in the last several days, and so I hope that I still maintain the same level of oral pleasure sexy voice that I usually do. Please check out all of these Slick Flick picks. Even if you haven't seen the movie, hopefully the Slick Flick pick will give you all the motivation you need to, in fact, see it. Now, I don't play that spoiler game, okay? If I'm going to talk about a movie, I'm going to talk about all the components of the movie I want. And notice that I'm picking movies that are relatively old. I mean, Chinatown goes back to the 70s, and a lot of these movies are at least 10, 15, 20 years old. This is where you go if you're truly a cinematic fanatic, and you love the shit out of cinema. Please check me out on Apple Podcasts, because Apple allows you to leave comments, it allows you to leave feedback, and you can rate me. Please reach out to me on the comments, or fill out any of my polls, or any of the questions that are provided on these podcasts. But please reach out to me at falsettoprofit, all one word, falsettoprofit at gmail.com, with any questions, any comments, any feedback, and if there's any slick flicks that you would like to hear. I am here, always, your worthwhile cinephile. This fictional rendition oozes realism when hot tempers flare into scorching desert air during a precarious political schism. The special forces, led by handlebar scruff sporting Briggs, are an unsettling level of special, and when he deals Miller a cheap shot blow, this flick takes what you think you know and shoots it with a tactical crossbow. If you don't wind up in a desert hole six feet below, there's still more to explore before the credits roll. Do tell Chief Miller that you're good to go. This film is slicker than Iraqi oil. The sweat soldiers wipe while they toil. A lazy reporter sticking her pretty head in the inexhaustible sand. This film unfolds without holding your fucking hand. It does seem strange. Miller never earned a reprimand. But these autocrats and bureaucrats him outrank. Their diabolical plan not meant for him to understand. I remain always your fellow fiend for films, your worthwhile cinephile, and you remain my cinematic fanatics. Keep that popcorn fresh, or at least edible, for my next Slick F-Stars pick. Pick 14, Slick Flick pick. Hail to the thief. A-A-R-P burglary spree. Absolute Power, 1997. 
great fucking film directed by Clint Eastwood. It stars Clint Eastwood. It's one of the great thriller flicks from the 90s, and I love Clint Eastwood. But thank you for enjoying Green Zone with Matt Damon at the helm. God bless America. Falsetto out. <laughs>